You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Episode 11, The Paradox. Welcome to The Paradox with your attending, Dr. Eric Larson. He is a practicing anesthesiologist and clinical assistant professor at Michigan State University College of Human Medicine. Listen in as he takes you behind the scenes of what practicing medicine in today's ever-changing world is like with another doctor. The Paradox is a fun and accidentally informative show for physicians, patients, or anyone who has ever found themselves in a waiting room. Welcome, I'm your host, Dr. Eric Larson. This is The Paradox. If you're here for a first time, thank you so much for joining me. I think you'll learn some interesting things today. Also, I encourage you to go back and listen to some past episodes, always new topics on medicine. And thank you, friend, who sent this podcast your way. Or if you just stumbled upon it, it's your good fortune and mine as well. If you're a returning listener, thank you so much again for coming back and then also for sharing the show with your friends and colleagues and family. If you're a physician, this is a great way to share the show with your friends and people who are maybe medically uh, oriented or interested in what's going on. It's a great way of showing them what's going on in the trenches of medicine without getting too technical. I expect that physicians will learn things, but also people, lay people and people who are associated in the healthcare field, which are not physicians, for instance, nurses and other personnel. As always, go to the Patreon page at patreon.com slash the paradox. That's paradox spelled with a D-O-C-S. There you can sign up to be a patron supporter of the show. Every dollar raised goes towards the production and promotion of the show. Uh, You'll have access to bonus content as I produce more of it. Uh, I'll have my advertisement, which is running in Phoenix, Arizona, thanks to my cousin. And I'd also encourage you to visit the website at theparadox.com, where you can find show notes and obviously links to things that we talk about during the show. But also you can sign up for the email list. There's also now a YouTube channel. I am also on Facebook and Twitter. So there's no excuse for seeing my face and finding out more of the show and ways of spreading the show. Today's episode is an interesting one. I apologize a little bit in advance for the audio. It gets a little crackly at just a teeny bit partway through the show and actually just kind of various portions. Uh, I'm just returning back from a great vacation fishing in Canada with my boys. That was a great Father's Day weekend, so I hope you had a nice Father's Day as well. I would recommend the Watson's Windy Point Lodge, and I'll actually put the link on my show notes page. Uh, they did a great job, and if you want great walleye and northern fishing, you can't beat the place. Very personal, very nice people, and it's a great experience for a family. Uh, We always have fun to go there every couple years or so. Uh, I'd like to talk about the show now. Dr. Michelle Akkad is a cardiologist and internist out in California. He wrote a very interesting book called Moving Mountains, and I apologize again in the show that it takes me probably about a good five to ten minutes to really kind of get it, and uh, I don't know the hamster is not running quite as fast in the cage in my mind, but it took a little bit to kind of figure out the the essence and the point of it. So today's almost a philosophical discussion of medicine and and uh, much of medicine now, and certainly through medical training, is based on evidence-based medicine. And that means you use best practices and not an algorithmic, but oftentimes an algorithmic approach to medicine because the focus and the emphasis on much of education is on the population, right? So you want to keep people in general healthy. But the focus is not oftentimes on the person healthy. It seems a contradiction. However, it does come uh, it does come into play oftentimes when you're practicing. And if you're a physician, you know exactly what I mean. But how it actually affects your de- decision-making and what that means for a specific patient, well, that's sort of what we get, about, get into during the show. And so I think you'll find it interesting, uh, different. Uh, I do think that uh, when you look at individuals as opposed to patients as a population, it does shift the way you approach them. And it's certain something that certainly seems, it's always made me feel uneasy, I guess, while I'm practicing. 
I don't find I have as much problems with this as maybe a, some a general a generalist a family practice or internist or pediatrician, just because I have more of a technical sort of practice. It's sort of like if you did heart catheterizations. For the most part, you're just doing the catheterization, finding where the blockage and fixing it. I mean, there are obviously ways you can individualize treatment, but essentially you're more of a technician. But many physicians are more practice, practicing medicine, and that's why we call it practicing, and there's the art of medicine. And I think um, we get into, without using the word art, I think there's certainly the art and sort of the essence and the wisdom that comes along with practicing medicine is something that is de-emphasized in today's healthcare system. But I think it's essential uh, for patients, and I think it's what patients prefer in some way, although they may not think about it that way, nor do the physicians. But I think it's a different way of looking at how we treat people. And so anyway, without further delay, I'd like to go ahead and get into the episode. Again, this is episode 11 with Dr. Michelle Akkad on his book, The Moving Mountains. Enjoy. Welcome to The Paradox. I'm your host, Dr. Eric Larson. I'm here joined by my new friend, Dr. Michelle Akkad, who is our practicing cardiologist and internist out in California. Thank you for joining me. Thank you very much for having me on your show. And today's going to be a real interesting uh, uh, interview. As I was talking just before we went on, I really don't know where this is going to go because a lot of what we're going to talk about today is, oh, I suppose it's an unorthodox approach to medicine. And I would say that your book, which I found very interesting, was an unorthodox book about an unorthodox subject. And I think the basic premise is you had... Uh, Dr. Jeffrey Rose, who I certainly had never heard of him before, and he was from, I, was it the, mainly his work was in the 1960s that he sort of began his, with most of his impact? A little bit, correct, that's right, that's right, 1960s, he wrote, he himself wrote his own book um, uh, in 1993, so, okay. uh, so his career spanned maybe 40 years from the, the late 50s to the early 1990s. And then he died shortly after publishing right. the book. And so, and so the, the book is a conversation between Socrates, who has been long gone in this world for a couple thousand years, right? And this Dr. Jeffrey Rose, and, and it's a discussion on Rose's, uh, I don't know if you'd say philosophy, but sort of his approach to medicine. And he was, I, I gather, more of an epidemiologist where he's looking at populations versus um, individual, individual patients. Is that is that pretty accurate? That's right. I mean, uh, nowadays I think you can't you can't really open a, a medical journal or even the the you know lay magazines without hearing about the concept of population health. It's population health this, population health that. Everybody's in favor of population health, and of course, you know who who's going to be against population health. But the the term um, has actually a specific meaning. And uh, you can trace it back to the theory of Jeffrey Rose, uh, who was an epidemiologist. Um, He was a clinician. I I don't know if he was a cardiologist or not, but I know that his early work uh, was in in cardiovascular disease epidemiology. He was part of fairly large um, and important uh, studies in the 60s and 70s. And uh, uh, but then he, he elaborated a certain theory about uh, health and disease, which eventually culminated into a, a movement. And the movement has taken over um, academia and has, you know, caught the interest of uh, a lot of people, including, you know, sort of private large health systems. Um, everybody espouses the idea of population health, uh, although no- nobody is really sure what it means. <laughs> and so part of my book was to try to, to get to the bottom of that, Right. And, and so your book called Moving Mountains, uh, again, real interesting. And that'll be up on the show notes page, which is theparadox.com slash 011. And um, I guess when you look at the book, it, it starts out by, talk, by just um, addressing, I guess, the way we look at medicine. And so right now when you treat someone, I always joke again, and this is the same thing I said in the last episode, but you know, when you talk about a medication and how well it works – it essentially works at either 0% or 100% for most people, right? Sort of like your chance of getting cancer is 0 or 100%. I don't know which it is. Right? You're either going to get it or not. I can give you averages. And so 
most of medicine, and certainly with my medical training, I graduated from medical school in 2000 uh, and finished, and I went out of private practice in 2004. And so when you look at how effective medications are or um, the you know, chance of things happening, you, I would say you, you, you translate things that are population-based, I guess you'd say, to the individual. And, and, and I guess the, the question is, it, it, are, you, are you looking at a different way of, of approaching patients from uh, like an individual medication or something like that? Because, you know, I'll say you have a 20% chance of getting a sore throat from my breathing tube when I, you know, I'll take it out uh, for a day or so. Is that not the way you, you approach it or are we talking about something entirely different? No, I think that's part of the problem. I mean, I mean are you asking me what I do myself in clinical practice? Well, I th- not not you specifically. I guess I guess the the question is the way we the way that we learn things now in medicine and uh, the way you know journals report that the treatment X is has is this is forty percent effective or whatever you know saying how does that how would medicine is that different than what it was and then um, how is how would medicine be why don't you just answer the first yes. thing? Is it different than it used to be? Did medicine you have a different approach and way of looking at yes, it? Yes, I think it I think it, it it does. I mean, I think right now the this emphasis on quantifying probabilities and um, risks and degrees of belief and so forth is all very new. Uh, I mean, it's new. I mean, I'm saying in, in a relative sense. I mean, it's it's a 20th century thing and 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 pretty much a post World War II um uh, thing where all of a sudden statistical inference became extremely important and and dominates everything not just in medicine but in many other fields of uh, uh, the social sciences and so forth so so now right. we talk about things you know you, you would tell a patient and without uh, batting an eyelash you will tell the patient you have a 20 percent chance of getting this or that yeah right but if you think right. about it it's, it's kind of a, an incoherent uh, you know statement because it either is going to happen or it's not going to happen it's either true or false and uh, and this precise quantification um, did not come to us naturally. It's it sort of it built in over the, the last few decades by the encroachment primarily of uh, uh, you know public public health considerations and uh, and um, the applied statistics uh, that were essentially brought into the the clinical and the bedside and the clinical arena. Um, so, you know, I, it's not actually the, f- the focus of my book, but it's 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 an important uh, uh, aspect, and and so we can spend a few minutes talking about it. So, so there is a sense in which, you know, we have we seem to have various degrees of of um, of certainty about what will happen, right. Um, mm-hmm. Right, but 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 it's a far cry from actually putting a, a number to it, okay. and and saying it's you know twenty percent or or X percent, and even that degree of certainty, you know, philosophically, if if you dig into it, um, it it's complicated exactly what that means. So I, I don't want to spend too much time on that, but right. but but there is certainly there's been a huge push uh, to have doctors embrace. Uh, this you know this whole quantification thing and and make uh, uh, calculations on the basis of percentages of uh, you know what we expect will happen and and so forth. Um, so yeah, go ahead. Is that is that more a would you say that's more a cultural societal shift in that people are I don't know if they're more educated or they just feel like they they you want to quantify the risk so that people have an expectation for what's going to happen right so. I'm going to operate on your leg and I'm going to tell you you have a very good chance that you'll have pain afterwards. And I'll say, there's a, there's a chance you get an infection. They say, well, I'm going to infection my leg. I might have to have my leg amputated. Well, that's a very small chance. And then you have to, you feel some need to quantify that in some way to say, well, it's, it's extremely rare, but I have to tell you about all the risks is, is that sort of what, what you're. Yes. So you're right. There's a huge cultural shift and, um, and and it's very deep. It's very deep because uh, philosophically it has to do with uh, how we think about what we know, and you know, it's it's about the theory of knowledge, if you will. Um, and and now we we're, we're seem, we seem to be reduced to thinking of knowledge in terms of 
you know, some kind of mathematical probability function. Uh, right, yeah. And, and uh, but but the, the reality, or in reality, it should be that uh, the surgeon is going to operate because he, th- he thinks or she thinks it's the right thing to do, right? At this moment in time, right. you know, I'm the surgeon and I think it's the right thing to do. And either the patient agrees or doesn't, you know, or disagrees. But really, there's no reason for mm-hmm. uh, mathematics to enter into uh, into the equation, if I, if, I, if I can make that pun here. Um, right. So, 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 so there's, uh, there is this sort of cultural emphasis on um, methods of quantification, and, and they have pervaded our thinking very deeply. So that now, I, you know, when I point out that it's a little bit ludicrous to, to think in terms of probability and, and statistics and, and how you apply the results of clinical trials and all that stuff, you know, I, I get a lot of blank stares from uh, my audience uh, because they, they can't imagine not thinking without, you know, some kind of handle on, you know, what clinical trials show, you know, what percentage of patients, you know, what's, uh, you know, what percentage of patients do what and, and so forth. Right. And so, and I would say uh, in looking at medicine now and sort of the way it's practiced and the way it's evolving, and I think it's just I've noticed a change since I've been on practice now for almost 14, 15 years that there is a more of an algorithm sort of based uh, method. And I know you get into this in, in the book. And so I think that sort of goes along with the numbers, right? So you say, well, I know that 20% of people, if I look at a large population, we're going to have prop- going to get an infection when they have a urinary catheter and let's say, or whatever, let's say it's 20%. So I think, well, if I want to minimize my risk for that, I'm going to standardize a process where I don't place them because then I'm going to decrease my risks for this. Uh, and, and so that may not actually be the best, the best treatment for that particular patient. But you know that over, on a population wide, you know that from a hospital system standpoint, or you know a healthcare system, that it's going to be better for them from a number standpoint. Even though maybe that one particular patient would benefit from having that because they can't get up to the bathroom and so they're more likely to fall or whatever. But you sort of reduce an individualized um, statistic where. Yes, if you look at everybody, there's a 20% chance of infection, but that person, maybe it's very small, and the risk for everything else is so much greater, but because you have a certain protocol in place. Correct. I think think you're right. I mean, essentially, it's the tension between, you know, what is fundamentally clinical judgment, because clinical judgment is about a specific person at a given point in time under very specific circumstances. And there's really um, no way to... uh, or the population studies should be secondary um, and shouldn't dictate what you're going to do for that person or what you're going to recommend to that person uh, at any given point in time. They inform your judgment. You know, the the large studies inform your judgment. But I think people are mistaken in in, uh, how the large studies actually inform judgment. For example, if there's a clinical trial... Um, mm-hmm. you know, that has enrolled, you know, thousands of patients. I think the, the information, the important information from the clinical trial is nothing more than the shared experience. Um, you know, so, so you can read the, the clinical trial um, uh, report and, and have, you know, get a sense of in general, you know, what happens to people when they're exposed to this treatment or this diagnostic test and whatnot. But the actual um, uh, outcome of the trial, whether you know, you can say that the, the drug was more effective or ineffective with a p-value of zero point zero, whatever. You know, all this all this quantification is actually irrelevant because you have you know, yeah. if say drug A is uh, serious to drug B by you know twelve percent point, you know twelve percentage and whatnot, that doesn't tell you what's going to happen to your patient, whether you give your patient drug A or drug B. Uh, it's almost irrelevant, but but there's information that's full in terms of you know it's essentially shared experience, and in a way, it's right. not really different from what people did before clinical trials were so popular. They would just publish large case series, and you know they, they would not be uh, you know the case series would not have precise uh, concomitant control groups and whatnot. They would have historical controls and so forth, but they were useful nevertheless, and and you can in a way mentally fill in the blanks. And um, 
and that's what wise clinicians would be you know are able to do uh, they can sort of uh, mentally make uh, you know uh, imagine what might happen to the patient uh, with one process or another and then make a decision and it doesn't and 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 at at the end of the day you never know you never know if any particular decision is the right thing for the patient or not because you don't have a, a parallel universe to compare it to right to compare what you do so whether you follow the uh, you know the currently preferred uh, population based algorithms uh, <laughs> to the t or whether you right. use your own clinical judgment and whatever reasoning you come up with uh, based on your your experience and and your whatever wisdom you have and people have different uh, degrees of wisdom, you know, there's no way to say that one is superior, you know, scientifically or, or quantify quantify that one approach is better than the other. Um, but the difference is that the algorithm is in many ways uh, uh, inhumane. <laughs> and, right. and and we sense that. We, we have a strong sense of, I think, clinicians who uh, who try to pay attention to um, to their patients, you know, get a sense that, that no, they... they they can come up with reasons to deviate from the, I mean, not always. I mean, sometimes you, you're going to follow the algorithm, but other times you want to be able to deviate from the algorithm. And, um, and, and you may not always be able to articulate it. So the problem now is that there's a demand, a constant demand on clinicians to articulate precisely, you know, why they're taking each right. step that they're taking. And that's, you know, it takes an, a huge amount of time and it's distracting and it's, and and so the path of well, it's not accurate, and it's not right? accurate. Correct, right, right. I mean, so essentially, you're so what you're doing is you're 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 taking these large studies that are over large populations, and they have these, and you're trying to hope that your patient matches the the average patient of the one thousand people or so, uh, or ten thousand that might be in this large study, and you're hoping that the circumstances are similar, and uh, that you can extrapolate using that study, uh, appropriate treatment. And of course, you can't make any assurances because it turns out that people are very different. <laughs> Correct. And I think, and, and um, I've been to a, a lot of, and this is very important because I've been to a lot of meetings in the hospitals and, and certainly all through medical school. I mean, you know, evidence-based medicine, at least when I was in training, that was the gold standard, right? We want to practice evidence-based medicine because we don't want to just kind of use random sort of guesses. We want to have an educated, systematic approach to to treatment, and that's using these these studies that match your population, mat, that your individual matches some population, right, for a particular procedure or whether you know disease. And so you essentially have uh, you're you're essentially ex- extrapolating and you're and you're guessing. But the problem is is that again, no one's the same, and and I've heard at least three or four Six Sigma talks in our in um, the healthcare system and in other talks like in the large um, specialty forums where they talk about bringing airline pilots to try and streamline, make the hospitals work appropriately. And then, you know, they talk, these pilots come in, they're aghast at how we, how we go, they walk into an operating room and everyone uses different instruments and people use different uh, approaches for doing whatever. Maybe it's like putting a knee or they use different instrument systems. And everyone has a different way of doing the anesthesia. And the nurses may do things a little bit differently as well. And so they they can't they can't believe that we have a essentially a thousand different ways of doing the same thing, right? And so they're and so they and for someone who runs uh, who's a pilot of a plane, you get in the, that 747, everything's exactly in the same place. All the parts are where they are in every other 747, you know, made by Boeing. And so you're into your flight checks exactly the same. And so it, you should go through, I mean, algorithm absolutely makes sense. Or if you're in a car factory, everything should be in the same place and everything runs exactly the same because every car is going to come out exactly the same, maybe just a different color or something like that. And so, f- and so they've, tr- the healthcare systems, and this is not unique to any healthcare system that I'm aware of. They're all the same in the sense that they try and use that same process to move patients through. And I find it amazing that people are in, they're entirely capable of looking across the room and not being surprised that no one looks like them. <laughs> they're different shapes and sizes and ages and you know some people have canes or whatever and yet they are somehow feel that they can use the same principles of 
automation with a with a mass producing you know toasters and use that sort of thing to take care of people and and treat their illness i mean that's right that's right so the the airplane analogy you know uh, has had a lot of purchase among uh, you know health uh, healthcare policy planners and 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 so forth to be fair it's not entirely unreasonable and and there may be parts of um you know the the process of of healthcare that can lend themselves to you know a sort of a, a, a more mechanical and regimented and algorithmic approach oh absolutely um, parts are yes so so it's not it's not entirely unreasonable uh, but the question is who should design the algorithms when should they be applied when should they be should there be exceptions to the algorithms how frequently should they be modified and the problem is that for the most part it's been a top down approach where the people who are best uh, able to to design the algorithms and uh, implement them where they should be implemented are not uh, are rarely part of the the decision process and and the algorithms are imposed from um, you know from the outside and top down and and it's going to be the same algorithm for the entire country um, and 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 the 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 goals of implementation of the algorithms you know they they're there are conflicts of interest because it's tied to how much a hospital will get paid and that sort of thing so there are a lot of problems with uh, right. with that but but uh, so so it's not that you know we're, we're completely against algorithms all the time, but it's you know what algorithms when, and uh, and, and who should decide. And we're we're in a healthcare system where everything is extremely centralized, where uh, there's a, a fragmentation and uh, of interest and conflict of interest, and it's all discomb- discombobulated, discombobulated, and um, and. In, uh, <laughs> Impose algorithms to the you know seems to the central planner a way to put order into the mess, but it it really doesn't. It it just adds to the to the confusion uh, in, in many ways. Right, and and I think and I think when you're if you're a hospital administrator, you're looking at ways of trying to get um, to get to get a handle on how much things cost and how to move and you know, throughput and inventory and I mean. There, many parts of healthcare, as you say, are are definitely useful to use algorithms. For instance, how, and I'm in the operating theater, so for me, it makes sense to have a process for cleaning the room and turning over between operations. You have someone come in who mops, someone who comes in who wipes down all the cables, someone who makes sure all the medications are the right place, someone brings new case carts in, take the old case carts out, and gets all that stuff set up. I mean, that is a very, it could be easily regimented and automated sort of process. It's just when it comes to the patient who lays on the table, I guarantee that patient who lays on the table is nothing like the patient before. I mean, they probably have four limbs, but it, but outside of that, it could be entirely different. Right. And so you can't expect to have that process be the same, right? You wouldn't come in if you have bring in a Toyota and you change the oil and the next car that comes in is like a Tesla. Well, it doesn't even have oil, right? I mean, you can't treat Correct. it the same way. And so the expectation that, that things are the same is inappropriate and, and, in that sense. However, there are parts right. that the algorithm and, works. And you want you want the uh, you know the, the the clinicians and the, the healthcare um, uh, workers who are closest to the patient. You want them to be able to uh, to decide and and not be so preoccupied at following the algorithms because there's now it's there's been so much emphasis on following the algorithm that it's become a huge distraction, and it's become the primary focus. Uh, of many doctors and healthcare workers is, is just, you know, following the routine because, you know, somebody somebody's watching and and uh, the the quality standards are going to be reflected on whether you check all the boxes and 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 do things in a, in a very right. algorithmic way and so forth. But the whole thing fundamentally, the 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 the, the, the big um, the fundamental problem is that. In our healthcare system, and in all healthcare, you know, large Western healthcare systems, uh, it's been the case for the last fifty, sixty years, seventy years, that the patient is. Um, I mean, to me, it's an economic problem or a socio-economic problem. Is that the the paying for healthcare? You know, the financing of the healthcare system is done by third parties, whether it's the government or large. Um, um, 
insurance companies that are in many ways sponsored right. by government programs mm-hmm. and or, or subsidized and, and so forth. So you have this uh, this uh, situation where you have um, the clinicians, the hospitals being paid for by an entity that is not ultimately the patient or that is not ultimately the, the person receiving the care. And, and so it's, there's an inherent conflict of interest and this population-based management system that includes algorithms, it includes guidelines, it includes all the things, you know, things that I talk about in the book, um, is the natural consequence of this arrangement um, of, of third parties paying for the care of the population at large and, and wanting to manage how the system is run. And, um, and, and so that's, uh, that's the reason why. And on, until that changes, I don't think you, you're able to, to, to correct that uh, because, you know, if, if now we, we um, care is, you know, is financed primarily, say, by insurance companies or primarily by the government or whatnot, it, it stands to reason that the insurance company and the government uh, want to have a say in how the money is being spent Right. Uh, yeah. But the problem is that they are not doctors and they're not there at the time that the care is being given. They're not, they can't have a spy in each operating room or, or a representative <laughs> in every uh, uh, examination room in the doctor's office. And therefore, the, the, the only way they can uh, you know, have a, get a handle on the situation is to impose you know, algorithms and impose uh, you know, population-based philosophies on, on, on how care should be uh, uh, dispersed. And, and that's what we see. Right. And so, I mean, to the first part of your point, when you talk about checking, clicking boxes, that absolutely is um, synonymous with an electronic health record, right? So you have these these records in it. And so the way to try and make sure everything's been done properly and to document it is you have, you have to have some sort of algorithm so that you actually complete the different tasks that are involved. Uh, so that is, so the, the electronic health records in, in many ways is, is creating is almost forcing algorithms or algorithmic approach to medicine in a non-individualized treatment pattern. And then your point about the third-party payers essentially is that if I have a house and I, um, if I'm the, the government, let's just say, and I want to make sure the houses don't burn down, I want to make sure I get the small percentage of houses burned down. So I, so I centralize my fire station by where the largest population is, right? But if you live way out of the country, I'm not as worried about you because you're only one house. And, and although for you, that is everything, right? And so you want to make sure that you absolutely have fire coverage and, and your houses are burned down. So your, your um, incentive is not going to match and align with the government's because the, or the third party, the person paying for it, because they want it, they're, they're looking at the population as a whole. And so they're minimizing the, their overall fire risk. And if you're way on the end, well, you're just kind of out of luck because you're a small percentage of, right? And so that's sort of the way, way of looking that's at right. it. That's right. And that's it. And that's really in the best case scenario because to say that they're interested in the the, the population as, as a whole uh, perhaps gives them a little too much credit. <laughs> I mean, for the most part, you know, uh, politicians are interested in getting reelected. That that's, that's their primary uh, interest. You know, bu- bureaucrats are interested in um, keeping their job and not having their agency be in the newspaper. Then you know, one day because there's some kind of a uh, you know a scandal or something. And so they're going to be extremely conservative and just do what they've been doing for the last 20 years. And, um, and, and plus, they have no knowledge of really of what, what happens uh, uh, on the scene. And so they, they apply these uh, statistical methods and this uh, utilitarian calculus, uh, but it's, it really doesn't work. I mean, they, even if they can you know, do some kind of study to give them a, a rough guide as to what would optimize uh, outcomes in a certain way, the nature of medicine and medical care and healthcare is such is so dynamic intrinsically that you know by the time they apply the the, the guidelines derived from these studies, things have changed and and you have no confidence in the fact that even if the guidelines and the algorithms were applied perfectly, that would actually maximize anything, you know, uh, and it right. probably yeah. wouldn't, you know, in, in, uh, everybody, you know, I think everybody knows that, but nobody's uh, willing to admit it. Well, and you, I mean, you've seen this when it comes to beta blockade and you, and for a while everyone was, they're using beta blockers, which is a medication that's used to slow the heart rate and, um, is found to have a protective effect on the heart. 
And so their large studies were placed and they showed that there was a benefit to people who, um, uh, to stay in beta blockers. And so they, and then what happened is people extrapolate and said, well, well, everybody should be in beta blockers before surgery. So they started piling all these beta blockers on these different people, these medications. And then finds they find out later on that of course this causes instant increased incidence of stroke and other problems. And what's more interesting of course, is that after about five or six years of people knowing this, the government and the, I don't know if it's CMS, but all the different healthcare systems, they all and insurance companies that one of their, markers for quality was that you make sure people are in beta blockers. Right. Right? And, right. And, but then by the time they have it imposed, it's, about, it's been imposed for maybe just a couple of years and they're starting to, to reward or penalize uh, healthcare systems for having higher low numbers of people on beta blockers. Then they decide, discover that it's, it's, it's disadvantageous to be on them and it takes them years to get it off, right? And so they, yes. and so you, the, like to your point, the, the dynamism of, of sort of healthcare and the new medications techniques uh, and not only, not only that, but then they they don't even suffer the you know they they're not themselves penalized for uh, you know having well, imposed right. <laughs> the wrong policy that has you know hurt you know possibly countless uh, uh, hapless patients uh, doctors uh, they they suffer no consequence and and they keep doing what they what they've been doing all along you know they, they'll try something else um, with uh, equally low probability of of uh, really being uh, on target with anything yeah you're not going to switch to a different CMS right. You're kind of there's only one center of right. medical services, um, and so this kind of goes into the. Uh, I guess the, the so this is the philosophical question now. If you are maybe not philosophical is the wrong word, but so if I'm treating a patient, and um, and I want to use a, an approach different than what's used now, so would it be sort of like me going to the car uh, to get my car fixed and? going to the mechanic and he said, well, it's about a 40% chance this carburetor is going to get you fixed. And, you know, there's a good chance this car's, but, you know, it's maybe about a 75% chance this thing's going to run okay for the next, you know, six months versus going and just saying, we think this is wrong. This is wrong. This needs to be fixed. I've looked over the car because no one ever gets percentages in anything else. I mean, you don't go and go to get your get a cake made and they say, well, it's about an 85% chance for right. icing right. And I think our lettering will be good. Our spelling's really good. So about a 98% chance of spelling being proper. I mean, you... Right. And what's the risk products, of eating too much sugar? Right. right. Yeah, the sugar yeah. to the family. A chance of too much sugar, 100%. <laughs> but, but, um, it, and so there aren't many parts of life where actually, I mean, it, when I, in reading your book, and not, not until I was sort of talking about now, does it sort of make sense to me that your, your point really is that there aren't many places in life where you are, almost expect to have these sorts of probabilities tossed around, except I, that's, I guess, because of, I guess, because it probably part, partly the nature of, of how healthcare is paid for and delivered. And because you have very large impersonal uh, organizations that are looking over you. So yes, uh, Eric, the, the keyword is impersonal because uh, in this system where you have third parties involved whether it's the payers or the regulators or the government or whatnot, and all these third parties view things on a population um, or from a population perspective, and they don't really care individually about any given patient or any specific patient. This arrangement here uh, changes the nature of, of, uh, uh, of the medical relationship because the medical relationship really ultimately is about a doctor caring uh, for and caring about another uh, individual person, right? And 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 therefore the decision. You know, when when you as a doctor you you make a decision, it's you think that for patient X, you know, or, or Mrs. Jones or Mr. Brown in front of you, that's going to be in his or her best interest. Okay, and that has been distorted, right. and now. What what happens now? We're, we're training and we're being trained, and that includes me and you and you know people who have been uh, in practice for the last thirty forty years, or probably even more. In my my opinion, I mean that's been sort of ongoing for 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 a long time. We've we've turned the doctor into a sort of an expert technician. So so now there's a detachment from the patient, and you're the expert, and you're going to apply the wizardry of. Uh, statistical probabilities and, and prognostication and so forth in order to make a decision. Uh, but that's really contrary to the nature of, 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 of what medicine is about. Um, and, um, 
and uh, and 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 people are confused uh, i think about that and and well-meaning people are confused and people who go into medicine for the right reason um thinking that it's going to be a you know that is a pre- profession really about personal relationship uh, end up discovering that it's become a a, a technical profession um, about applying these algorithms and these population-based con- considerations uh, to patients in a very impersonal level. Now, of course, many people try to do the best th- that they can and intuitively still hang on to the, the correct notion of what medicine is about. But there's clearly a, a conflict. It, it puts everybody in a conflict. Right. Um, yeah, and, and you hear... And so, I mean, part of the... Part of the nature, I imagine, is because you have people with less technical skills. That they're trying to deliver healthcare, right? I mean, I think this this comes to the right. To the that's right. And that's that's and, right. And I, I mean, that's, I don't want to get into that too much, but I feel when it comes to, I, certainly, I've talked to a number of physicians. We'll talk about this in just a moment. But it, I've talked to some direct primary care physicians, and and they're with the ones who were in pre- previous healthcare systems. They definitely have that assembly line, um, a mill sort of feel to it. That they're judged on the, the referral rates, how much they use utilizes imaging, and they utilize uh, uh, laboratories and referrals within the healthcare systems network, and that they're not judged on how well their patients do because it's more on how they utilize resources. Or there are a lot of other things pulling them in different directions that are that are not in the interest of the patient. I mean, they may not necessarily be against the patient's wishes or like detrimental to them, but certainly that they have a lot of other things pulling them besides that person sitting in front of them. And that's not why many of us got yes. into medicine to begin yes. with, right? Is that Norman Rockwell pipe Correct. painting? Correct. And, and you're right that people will, say, will will make the claim that, you know, I mean, you have to standardize because, uh, you know, there were a lot of, of uh, doctors who were not technically proficient before. But the truth is, um, is that, it, technical proficiency can never never be a, a good substitute for for genuinely caring doctors, and right. and the doctors who are genuinely genuinely caring will actually go ahead and gain the technical proficiency and implement the algorithm when they see that it's the right thing to do, and you know uh, maintain good records when they see that it's, see that it's the right thing to do. You know, my favorite example, and it goes way back, but it, my favorite example is the example of the Mayo Clinic. Uh, I've studied the, uh, the early history of the Mayo Clinic and believe it or not, uh, the founder of the Mayo Clinic, the, the, you know, didn't have any license to speak of, you know, whether it's the, the father Mayo or the, his two sons, the brothers Mayo, but they were, uh, you know, they were motivated by, the, the care for their patients and the care for the profession. And therefore, they went to school. They got all the degrees that were necessary. They kept up to date. They implemented uh, the medical record. Really, the, the modern medical record uh, was invented at the Mayo Clinic. And the Mayo Clinic had all kinds of um, processes, sort of uh, regimented processes so as to run smoothly right? But these were not imposed from the outside by, by mm-hmm. third-party regulators. They were designed by the doctors who cared, who, uh, you know, saw, saw what, the, what the best way of, 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 uh, of running things was and implemented it accordingly. And, and they were rewarded by the patients. The patients could recognize that this was a, the better care and, and they, they got rewarded and, and the, the Mayo Clinic became very, very successful before there was any kind of third-party intent to "Quote unquote," ensure that everybody's you know competent, and with this uh, illusion that you can ensure the, the the competency of doctors by imposing uh, technical proficiency exams, whether it's uh, you know board certifications or whatnot, or that you can imp- yeah. and and when that fails, then then you resort to algorithms, and when that fails, you resort to I don't know what you resort you resort to <laughs> to we'll uh, to replacing to replacing doctors with uh, you know robots or 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 non-doctors who are more willing or more, more malleable and more willing to follow algorithms. or And, and that's the trend. That's the trend that I'm seeing is that there's a, um, uh, to some extent, I mean, there, I think there's an ongoing, uh, 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 there's an awakening right now among doctors and a, and a healthy rebellion against all of that. But, um, but we need to be very vigilant because that's the logic of the of the system, the logic of the central planners and the third party payers and the, the, the regulators is that they, they only see 
processes and they only focus on the uh, a certain idea of, of population health and um, and and it's very unhealthy uh, as I say population health is very unhealthy so so how would you counter someone who says to you well that's all f- I mean I understand you want to treat people as individuals and you know you do your best you can within a system but how do you how do you square the fact that people need screening right so how do you figure out who you recommend to have colonoscopies and uh, PSAs and uh, mammograms? How do you decide on that sort of thing if you are treating not populations, but you're just treating individuals? How, how would you counter that, per, that argument? Right. So you, you, it doesn't discount uh, – you treat individuals, but you don't discount the value of, of uh, population-based studies. So I'm not saying that we shouldn't do population-based studies and, and learn f- from those studies. But – but the, the 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 focus should not be the population, the health of the population. The focus should always be the 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 health of the individual. And it's interesting that um, right now we live in an age where we can't think of doing population health studies without having big government programs and whatnot. But something that people don't really know is that um, hypertension, the 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 idea that high blood pressure is bad for you was discovered not by academic running large public health uh, or epidemiologic studies. It was actually discovered by the private, sec- private sector. It was discovered by life insurance companies um, in the 1920s and 1930s. Um, and in those days, people, you know, doctors uh, knew very little about blood pressure. The, the devices to measure the blood pressure accurately had just been, you know, designed and invented. But there was no application for them, and therefore the doctors were really not interested in measuring anybody's blood pressure. But the insurance companies got got wind of that and thought, hmm, uh, you know, uh, they started to, to wonder if having a high blood pressure, you know, had any significance for the future. So they enrolled doctors and they gave them, they taught them how to measure the blood pressure. They gave them uh, blood pressure, you know, manometers, and and they are the ones who collected the, the data privately. Uh, that determines that yes, having a high pressure baseline, you know, gives you a, you know a higher chance of having uh, mm-hmm. uh, poor outcomes in the future, and uh, and so all that was done sort of uh, organically, and uh, and and then the you know the the, the medical community em- embraced that uh, knowledge, and and applied it, and so so it, we're not discounting the value of population studies, but we're what we want to refrain from uh, uh, getting into is is changing our focus from the patient in front of us, the patient to whom we should be, uh, or about whom we should be caring and for whom we should be caring, and to substitute for that uh, uh, individual attention, the attention to uh, the broader population. Right. Which is never productive. It's always counterproductive. You know, if you take care of every individual, the population will become healthy. But the converse is not true. And the converse is what they, you know, the people who push the population health agendas want you to believe. They say, no, 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 no. Pay, you know, work on these population-based norms, and then your patients will be will become healthy. But that 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 doesn't make sense, and it's and it's uh, it, it's flatly false. Yeah, and so uh, you worked for. We're not going to talk about any specific healthcare system, but you worked for a large healthcare system at some point, and then I've had a couple direct primary care physicians, and I'm I found your story a little bit more unusual in that you are um, a specialist, and so. I, you know, I talked to one of the physicians. He said it should be called direct patient care, not direct primary care, because he believes that we are moving towards, oh, uh, more, a system with more of a sort of, I guess, a normal transaction within a market uh, where you just have the patient pay you for whatever the services that they are requiring, whether it's a membership-based fee like for most of the direct primary care or a, um, a one-time fee for someone who's a specialist you might only see once in your life or maybe on a rare occasion, right? So can you just briefly go into... I guess how you ended up in direct primary care as a cardiologist and what that practice looks like as a specialist and how, and then third part, how do you treat patients differently than you did, um, than you did before when you were within the large health system? Right. Yeah. So I, I practice both. Uh, so I do. And, 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 uh, the point that your, your friend was making is, is, uh, absolutely, um, uh, perfect. It should be, uh, direct patient care and, I call my cardiology practice direct cardiology care, and I call my primary care practice direct patient, care, you know, direct primary care. So, 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 yeah. uh, yes, that's right. And and um, so I, I have a primary care practice um, 
that follows the um, the DPC model, the direct primary care model. It's a it's a reasonable monthly membership fee, and um, and because the, the membership fee, it it seems uh, primary care seems to lend itself um, better uh, uh, to a membership model. And then I have a cardiology and outpatient cardiology practice where people uh, come and find me. Um, uh, right now, most of them find me, uh, you know, on their own uh, online. I have a, I think, a nice website. The the practice is called the uh, Athletic Heart of San Francisco. I try to make it sort of appealing and upbeat, as opposed to calling it, you know, the center for cardiovascular <laughs> disease and failure <laughs> and whatnot. You're dying. But please come see right, me. Right, exactly. But what they find with me is that. Um, Number one, I'm readily available because I'm not congested. They don't have to wait three or six weeks to to see to see me. They can see me usually within within a few days for a cardiology consultation. I speak with them on the phone before they make an appointment, before they actually book an appointment, just to make sure that I understand their needs and that I can prepare the visit. Uh, after a brief phone call, if we decide to go ahead and have a visit, if I anticipate that they will need tests, then they will have their consultation and their uh, non-invasive test in one fell swoop and in a matter of two hours they can leave my office with a diagnosis the test done the recommendations and all of this which otherwise would take them you know weeks and weeks to <laughs> to obtain uh, and not only that my cash fees tend to be extremely competitive for patients yeah. who have high deductible insurance and so if, uh, if they have a high deductible and they have the misfortune of going to the university hospital to get their ultrasound it can it can be ruinous, whereas here it's you know it's reasonable and most of them find it very reasonable, and I tend to bundle my my services into into packages of of, of commonly obtained tests so that if they come and they have a consult, consultation an echo an EKG a, and a stress test it's sort of bundled into one very uh, affordable fee, and so so people find very, uh, that very advantageous and and they come even if they have insurance because it's. It's better than going within network. Sure. Um, so my my challenge is to to market that because you know it, it, you can't have it's very expensive to have you know advertising campaigns and and yeah. and so forth when people only need a cardiologist you know rarely and and punctually. So so it takes a long long time to to ramp up the 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 awareness of my practice. Right. But it's happening. So how uh, how shocked are people when they when they talk to you? That they're actually talking to a doctor who called right. who called them <laughs> people are visiting right. a cardiologist. Most of them are, are ext- right. Most of them are extremely you know grateful and uh, and it immediately gives a sense of trust that yeah. you know the doctor is willing to talk to the patients you know before they even show up. Do, do they believe and, it's really a doctor or do they think it's a recording? It? <laughs> yeah, no, I think they do because they, they you know they've been on my website and my website okay, so you know they, I have a blog and a, and a video and whatnot. So I, I I'm I'm very. Um, Patient-oriented in that way, and that you know to answer your third question, I think that's the the main the main difference is that it's not that I'm smarter or a better clinician or than than those who practice um, you know in in the system or within big box medicine, but I have the time, the freedom to focus my attention appropriately, and um, and and so and so I can do that. I don't have all of the distractions that my colleagues have of having to deal with. Uh, you know, uh, paperwork to get paid, you know, to justify the, the consultation, right. paperwork to uh, to show that you've provided quality care, uh, notes that have all kinds of, uh, <laughs> that are unreadable, really, right. clinical oh, notes yeah. that are unreadable because they contain so much uh, garbage. And uh, so I, I, I can do this. And then sometimes some patients, I can t- immediately dismiss them if I don't think they have a cardiac problem. I can tell them very quickly, right, that I don't need to justify doing all kinds of stuff uh, that that's unnecessary. Uh, I can so so if if a patient needs a lot of attention, I can spend the time, and if they don't need a lot of attention, then I can tailor my my consultation that way. Right. And so, how long have you been doing that? Uh, it's been about four years. Okay. So you're still solvent. So that's a good four sign years. that it's that it's working for right. you. Right. Right. It's so. arduous. I mean, I, I don't want to minimize the uh, the, the difficulties. Um, sure. And and so, but but I would never trade this back to to. to I mean, and clearly, I'm not doing as as I mean, financially. It's it's absolutely a negative compared to what I was doing before. Uh, you know, in the from system, from a financial standpoint, right? From a financial standpoint, it's a, it's a big uh, yeah. big loss, but it's a loss that I was willing to to incur 
uh, in exchange for you know peace of mind and and sort of uh, sanity and lack of burnout and that sort of thing. Well, right. I mean, because there is a cost to for for you in, for you mentally, right, and spiritually, to have to do all that extra paperwork at the end of the day and to do things that you think are not helpful to your to your practice and certainly to I your think patients. So. And so there's a lot of busy work, right? And so there's a there's a cost, and so you, that you trade off extra pay. You're kind of getting paid for doing stuff that was not helpful. It was it was harmful. I think so. I think so. And I think it's you know it's reflected in the in this uh, epidemic of uh, physician burnout that we uh, uh, we hear about and we experience uh, either in ourselves or in our colleagues. I mean, I was kind of unhappy when I was. Uh, yeah. Um, not not particularly. I mean, I was paid well and I was doing fun stuff. I was doing a lot of cardiac procedures and so forth. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I was always, uh, you know, triggered by you know, uh, stuff that seemed to be out of my control that I wanted to do in a different way. And I, I couldn't, I had, I felt helpless. Yeah. And, um, so, well, you know, we discussed when I, in episode eight, where I, I discussed with Dr. Dearman, we talked about physician burnout and suicide and the threat of malpractice. And I was surprised to find that su- the physician, that the amount, the number of percentage of physicians in, who are contemplating suicide within any one year, within any one year is 7%. And I found that really stunning. And, you know, we have almost 400 physician suicides per year. And I won't say there's one thing that leads to this. It's probably, you know, many things like everything. But, uh, you know, I think we undervalue sometimes personally our what we do, what we have to deal with personally. So it's great that you found a spot that you're doing what you, you're practicing the way you like to practice and that you think you're doing a good job. And, and, it, and that's, that's probably worth a lot more than probably you even give yourself credit to for Thank a couple you. times. Yeah. Um, so again, the, the book is Moving Mountains and that'll be linked on the show notes page. And are there any other ways people can find you that you'd like? Yes. Uh, if there are, uh, you know, doctors or, or health care professionals or people who are in the field who are interested in um, my blog, uh, it's called alertandoriented.com. And I blog regularly. Mm-hmm. And um, with a colleague of mine, we've recently started doing uh, a series of um, video blogs and we'll start probably moving to a podcast format as well uh, in the next few weeks but that will be linked to on my blog so alertandoriented.com and the book itself can be found at uh, okay. movingmountainsthebook.com that's the landing page for for the book if people want to uh, you know find out a little bit more what the book the book is about great and it is actually a very fun book to read you don't have to have much medical knowledge to understand the book i mean if you have some it i think gives you a little extra insight at at points but uh you know as someone who has been practicing for a while i i was unaware of most of the things that were mentioned in that book i mean outside of the way medicine is practiced but certainly the history and and it's a fun a fun sort of walk through and imagine what it's like if you hung out with socrates for a while so <laughs> my interest was actually was to try to attack the population the population health movement at its um, um, at its scientific base, or you know the scientific claims that that they're making. So I wanted to to get to the bottom of it. Right. Uh, but you're right. I try to make it to keep it accessible, and it's in a the whole book is in a dialogue format. It's a quick read too. I mean, it's uh, I think it's a hundred and some pages, but they're very. It's a very fast read. You can read all of it within a couple hours, I think. Um, so again, I would highly recommend the book, Doctor. Michelle Akkad, thank you so much for being uh, spending the afternoon or evening with me, I guess. Depends where you are in the which coast. And uh, hope to talk to you soon. My pleasure. Thanks for listening to The Paradox. If you like what The Doc is doing, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or Stitcher. And share the show with your friends. Become a supporting listener to get access to special bonuses at patreon.com forward slash the paradox. Show notes can be found at theparadox.com. I get my goals once a week and uh, it's it's tough for me to schedule an hour a week. You'd think that would be simple, but kids and it's, uh, trying to get other doctors oh, I'm sure. to match it. <laughs> it's, been, it's, it's been fun. The nice thing is you direct primary care guys, you're a lot easier. You kind of have a nice right. schedule. <laughs> yeah. <It's really> <laughs>
It's been, I, I go, they like, oh yeah, I'll just mark off an hour. I'll just, we'll just talk. Right. What? You can do that? It's like, yeah. Whatever. Right. Great. Do you have much of a, I didn't even ask you, do you have much staff at your practice? One person, one full time. Uh, and she's, she's my, my secretary. Uh, and she's, she's very good. She's a mature person. And she's not a medical trained person, which I wanted. I wanted somebody who could speak to patients and as a person mm-hmm. and not somebody trained in the, as a medical assistant who's used to, uh, you know, to the, to the right. assembly line uh, approach. And and then I have an, uh, an ultrasound uh, tech who comes okay. at, I was on an as-needed basis. Yeah. So she comes whenever I need um, to do an echo. Um, I was trying to figure out how you did echoes by yourself, but moving all those knobs and stuff and taking pictures. Right. So, some some cardiologists know how to do that. I'm I'm pretty pitiful, and and we're always better off with a <laughs> with a technician. And she's she's very good, and she comes, um, uh, you know, once a week or whenever whenever it's needed. 